1: Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast.
0: This is Play Me, Canada's national digital theater. Each week, we take some of the hottest plays and transform them into contemporary audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen,
1: and I'm Chris Holly. Welcome back to Play Me. Today's episode features an in-depth interview with playwright Kat Sandler. If you haven't already listened to Bang Bang, you can do so by visiting playmepodcast.com, or even better, you can subscribe to Play Me and iTunes. And while you have iTunes open, it would mean a lot to us if you could rate Play Me. Audio drama is experiencing a tremendous renaissance, and your reviews are the best way to help get word out about Play Me and build audiences for radio dramas. Kat Sandler is one of the most prolific and acclaimed playwrights our country has ever produced. Earlier this week, Laura Mullen had an opportunity to talk to Kat. Their conversation covered many topics ranging from Bang Bang's inspiration to Kat's writing process to some of the difficult challenges faced when writing about race and cultural appropriation. Here is Laura Mullen's interview with playwright Kat Sandler.
0: We're going to talk about Bang Bang, obviously, um, but when you had Bang Bang on um, at uh, the Factory Theater, there was some overlap when you had also Mustard playing. <laughs> yeah. So I know you write a lot of plays. I, I do. You do. <laughs> uh, so I guess my my first question is, how did you become a playwright? What was the start for you?
2: Um, I have always loved writing stories, and I uh, there was a there was a short story contest at my elementary school that actually. Uh, Colleen Murphy, who is a who is a very well known Canadian playwright, she was the judge of, and I think I, the first like thing I wrote I didn't really write my mom, like ghost wrote it for me like before we had these fancy computers, uh, and I just got kind of hooked. I used to write little plays and organize my cousins into into shows at the cottage and also direct obviously, and um, then my mother had been a, a TV writer for a long time in in the eighties. And uh, I just kind of got swept up in it. I love the idea of of being able to realize an idea that you that came from your imagination.
0: It's amazing how many people we interview for this podcast who did get a start in something like elementary school, yeah. high school, a teacher showing an interest, and I totally. think it's really important for people to remember. How important the arts oh, are, yeah. and these opportunities are in school,
2: and it helps so much. My parents are so supportive. I mean, God, I know they'd love it if I was a doctor or a lawyer, but they come to every opening night, and they have for my my whole life. And I went to a to like a math and science high school primarily that barely had a drama program. And as my final year project, I wanted to write, direct, star in, and produce a musical. And uh, and of course, we did. We rented out the um, the. Do you remember the poor Alex? Mm-hmm. And it was like this grubby old theater it reeked of weed and we didn't really know what it was. And we just gave them all of our savings to run it for three days. Like there's no way that theater should have cost $2,000 for three days. No way. And that was my first kind of brush with, with self-producing and writing and directing. <laughs>
0: And you say your mom was um, a TV writer, yeah. so he runs in the family. You obviously the yeah.
2: encouragement.
0: And then my father has
2: always been uh, like just the, the most epic storyteller. Like I, he, I, I need to sit him down and actually, I should talk to you guys about this. Just record all of his stories. He grew up in a Jewish deli at Baldwin and McCall, um, and his his parents were Ukrainian immigrants. And it just it like hearing him talk about that Toronto. Is is just the most magical. Like the names, the names are like Archie Nishimura, and like you can't make these names up. They're so beautiful and weird. And I did like so he would always tell us daddy daddy stories. <laughs> I sense a play in there. I know. Somewhere. There's. <laughs> I, I feel like it's a Mordecai Richler story.
0: <laughs> and what was your first entree to a professional field?
2: I guess after school, I I auditioned for Theater Gargantua. So I, I my first professional show was as an actor. Um, and I had no business doing physical theater whatsoever. I just hap- I was so bored, so I just went to the gym every day and then I like fooled them into thinking I could do it and then ended up working with them for four years. But that was my my first kind of professional gig um and then sometime after school my my friend Tom McGee and i we were just getting really sick of being told that that theater was dying because of our generation, and we were like, Well, why on earth would we go see plays Is that like they're not for us? Everything feels really beige um And uh, so we started a company that was kind of aimed at creating what we called theater for the HBO generation, but now we we would call it the Netflix generation that just kind of was was meant to be more cinematic and feel like it was marketed more like a television show or a really exciting movie and uh, really, you know, fast paced, high stakes, sexy, violent, all the things that we were watching on TV.
0: (laughs) And were you writing at the time when you were acting? Or, yeah, or did yeah.
2: And I'd always, a lot of companies, I think, start this way. Like I applied, we applied to SummerWorks and didn't get in and we were like, fuck it. We'll just make a, we'll just make a show ourselves, which is why it was so nice to be back at Factory because that's where we did our first show, Love, Sex, Money, in 2011. And we took what was what I thought at the time was a condo fund. Turned out it was it was not. It was not nearly enough to be a condo fund. But uh, all the money that I'd desperately been saving to put towards a condo, we took and rented out the factory backspace. Um, and we did that. We just pretended that we were professionals. And somehow we managed to sell that show out because our very intelligent producer um, hooked us up as a Groupon for Valentine's Day. So we were oversold. Like no one, no one really could see it from Toronto because there were so many Scarberians and <laughs> Burlingtonians coming in as a Valentine's Day deal. We made no money, of course, but we didn't lose money, which is huge.
0: <laughs> that's, I mean, that's yeah, the dream, right? That's the dream. Don't lose money. So then you've had the experience of being an actor, a playwright, a director, and a producer. Yes. You've, you've done it all. Yeah yes in theory <laughs> and, and then how does that influence your writing do you think all those lots parts.
2: and i think it changes too um when i know that i'm going to direct something then i kind of try to help myself out as a director later so i'm like well if you know nothing's nothing's really physical or active has happened in a little while maybe yeah maybe director cap might want some fancy blocking in here so something should happen at this point which is why there's always like my plays are actually quite formulaic like you know there's usually a fight in the third act and some kind of big climax where everyone's talking all over each other and um, like a, like a really awkward, funny situation to start. But that, um, I think pretty you think about like, what, what is, what's the empty slot right now in terms of subject matter or in terms of um, what people kind of want to see. So, so many people have been like, where's your Me Too play (laughs) like right now? You're like, I think there I think there will be enough. I think there will be lots of Me Too plays and movies and, and all that.
0: And with your producer hat, do you? Do, I know now you've been doing shows with Factory and Tarragon, and, and don't, don't have to take on that role necessarily. But oh, it's awesome! <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, it is a lot to take on yeah. all those things. But do you think, from a producer's perspective, in terms
2: of like, I better not make my cast with twelve people, or yeah, I'm well, not you know, set it in a totally and, ocean. And people think that Bang. I mean, Bang Bang was a big show for Factory Five. Is Five is big now? Yeah. Like Five is an expensive show. You look at something like Jerusalem, and that's fourteen. That's a huge show. Um, but then you have places like Stratford and, and Shaw looking for large cast plays. And we just like, it's so hard to write that knowing, you know, how will this, how will this happen unless it's independent? And then, you know, and I've done a lot of fringe shows where we did it as profit share. Um, but that's, you know, I, like with the exception of Pepper and Mervish and, and sometimes places like Tarragona Factory, like you just can't, I wouldn't think to write a 14 person play, but I got to do it at, uh, at Queens last year and right at 16 and that was nuts that was terrifying. <laughs> what was that play? That was called "The End of the World Club." It was about a a simulation, like a like a uh, Elon Musk type alumni of this fictional university uh, runs a, an end of the world simulation with a bunch of applicants, and it's the world has ended due to an apocalypse, and how do you rebuild society starting from the ground up? And of course, it, it becomes Lord of the Flies in the room, but that was. My my goal was to try to write a play where with sixteen people where everyone had shit to do. <laughs> there were no like furniture movers or spear carriers, and I think I think it worked. Everyone got a monologue at least.
0: Having a large cast is it hard for you to keep track of as a playwright and obviously as a director?
2: Yeah, it becomes a little bit more about planning, which I really I really hate. I'm really bad at outlining. I'm having to get much better at it, um, just because there's more projects now and I have to keep them straight and know where they're going to go. But having sixteen characters normally. Normally, I would just sit down and write until I knew what the play was about and figure it out that way, and then try to get that garbage draft in front of a room full of people that that I can talk to about it. And that's how, usually how I really figure out what it is. But with sixteen people, you kind of have to know a little bit more where it's going. <laughs> but we ran a, a for for that play, we ran an, like a fake simulation to see what would what would happen. So we took a lot of data from that. But sixteen is is a lot to write for when they're all meant to be three dimensional, fleshed out characters with wants and needs and loves and backstories. And, and probably we didn't need to include all of that.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, that brings me to a little bit about your process. Mm-hmm. Um, how, so when you go to, to write a play, because I know you, you must write them quickly, not I quickly, <laughs> initially quickly, I obviously you spend yeah. a lot of time on them, but you are able to write a lot. I think that's yeah. one of the things that you're <laughs> known for. So I wonder what, what is that
2: process for you? It, it's, it's changed a lot because it used to be, like on the producerial side, someone would say, okay, we have this space. You can have this space in three weeks. Do you have a play that can go up? And we'd be like, fuck it. Yeah, yeah. We'll just, we'll figure something out. We'll dust an idea off or uh, like with the storefront for something like liver. We were like, well, what have we not done to the storefront? So we haven't painted it white. Why would it be painted white? What's white? A hospital. That's medical. What's interesting? Okay, a body on a a body on a gurney. Why are they on a gurney? Um, what Like that's an interesting image for an audience to walk into. Uh, and that became he's on a gurney because he's dead and they'd taken his liver, but he's still alive. And how can a man live without a liver? And that's what, that's how liver kind of was born. So things, it can be anything. It can be an, like a, like an image, like a directorial, like, um, stage image that you'd like to create and start from there or like help yourself. I think there was a, there was a story about a a woman in China who caught a baby falling from the sky and that ended up just being in a monologue and help yourself. But like those kind of things, I think. I think as writers, we're always like collecting little tidbits of the world and then holding onto them, like sa- like squirrels saving nuts for the winter. Oh God, that's disgusting. You can use it, but I feel bad that I said it.
0: <laughs> I think that's really interesting because I th- I think um, a lot of people have to feel really connected sometimes to what they're writing about. Yeah, that a piece of them has to be. I'm not not speaking of everybody, obviously, but. I guess I'm speaking for myself that like a piece of, of myself has to be in something if I'm writing it. So to be able to just say the room is white, it's a hospital. Uh-huh. I'll go from there. How do you, um, how do you find the heart of the story when you write like that? I don't I think
2: you find the piece of yourself because every play is you, right? Like every uh, there, your tone and your voice is, is what you, what you're writing. So that le- liver expanded to, to, contain this, you know, this relationship that he had with his ex-wife and a younger woman. And then, you know, my, my thoughts and understanding about like women and aging and, and that kind of stuff was all able to get in there. And it's just like, what your play is about is really just the starting point. I find those little moments in the play are the things that I, that you remember that you really take home as an audience member. Um, But I think like, like mustard was really more about like, at the feeling of my childhood, not my childhood, like I'm not an alcoholic teenager, I wasn't, but like the I did have an imaginary friend that was really wrapped up in in stories that my parents told, so that i I think I think that we we find we find the heart in I find the heart as the play as the play develops, and so once you
0: have that idea, do you map it out? do you just
2: throw it down? Uh, all at once or what how do you approach it depends it? on where w- like like this the show that i'm doing at the citadel the, these two shows like we have an outline for that because that's what we pitched to the citadel so now i have to write to that outline uh whereas a lot of the early shows i just sit down and write until it was like in the summer i just started writing a play about a, a woman whose husband turns out to be a piece of ai and she didn't she didn't know her parents purchased him for her um and that, that I wrote in almost like it's, it's, I pro- probably wrote about 70 pages in a week, wow! but it's, but page, like pages are not like, like you can write a garbage monologue that co- that, is, that costs, that is, that is 10 pages if, if, you, if it's just flowing. And then, you know, for the last, what'll probably be 10, 20 pages, it'll take me, I'll have to go back and fix all those 60 and figure it out. So the first, like I, like I call it like the diarrhea draft. It's just like, pfft, get it all out. And then you can talk to people about what it is because I never know. I don't usually know. And when
0: you're writing it, are you analyzing it? Are you thinking like, this isn't good. I don't, you know,
2: th- I'm just writing it for writing it. Like, are you judging yourself? Yeah. Or are you able to just let it, oh, let no. it go? Oh, no, I think it's both because I, I, I like to meet the characters that way. Like I like I write quickly because I don't know what's going to happen and, I, and they don't know what's going to happen. And it's like we're all kind of together on this weird ride, like trying to figure out where they're going to go and what they're going to do. And that helps develop their voice because I am incapable for some reason of starting where I left off. I always have to go back to the beginning, no matter how And like, bang, bang was like a million pages, like 130 pages. And I'd have to start every time I sat down, I'd have to go back to the first page and work through that way. Cause my brain just kind of can't, I'm going to, I'm going to have to fix that. That's not That's not going to work for TV and film. But, um, I think that that first rush is, is discovering the characters as they kind of are born. So that's fun. That's fun for me. Like I'm surprised by things they do and, and, we're all surprised about how we get to the end.
0: So you don't know the ending. No. When you you
2: write, you, you discover it as you write. The last time I knew the ending, everyone afterwards were like, we saw that ending coming. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, I know I did too. It was easier. (laughs) But I think like that's, those are some of my favorite, my favorite plays and movies. And like with a really solid twist and a bit like usual suspects, like any of those things I love, I love like going, but working those backwards. So I hope that I'll be, I hope I can get better at that. I think it's, I think it's nicer to know the ending. I just don't usually.
0: Yeah. I was interested to hear Nicholas Bion talk about his process. Yeah. He was like, I... It was very um, strict, strict in a way. He was like, I don't respond to emails in the daytime. You know, I work from this time to this time and I map it all out and I know exactly what's going to happen. And uh-huh. I thought, wow, That's I myself amazing. could not do something like that. So so you would say it's maybe a totally
2: opposite. It's totally opposite. And, and also I don't work, like I am very easily distracted and I distract myself and I procrastinate and, and I t- hence why I've taken a full month to do basically nothing, just uh, shove food and alcohol into my body. But... Like, I, I think first, like, as we get close, as I get closer to a deadline, then I start cracking down and then I'll work all day and into the night and drive myself totally nuts. Like working on Bang Bang, we had, the, I was in the green room at factory a few weeks before we started rehearsal and it was just covered in cue cards, like different color. It looked like a, like a serial killer's den. Like every available surface was colored in multicolored cue cards. But that didn't make sense. One of them would just say head. One of them would just be like money, question mark. Black, maybe? So these were notes for yourself to yeah. sort of and then they, they got the organized doctor. into into some kind of an outline because that like that play had been finished and then really wasn't working, so I had to rebreak it the way you would kind of rebreak a story for television.
0: So um Bang Bang was a factory commission. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about how that came to Yeah production?
2: Bang Bang actually started at the um Stratford Writers Retreat in oh god, I think twenty fifteen. And I wrote about 20, 30 pages there. And then I, I brought back, I brought that to some people, the people at factory and they, Matt McGeechie and Nina both read it and they said they wanted to commission it. So how much did you have written at that time? 30 pages? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just 30 pages. I know it's crazy. And and I was like, are you sure you want this? Like there's not, not a lot there, but they, they liked the concept enough. And that's, that's amazing. That's such an amazing gift to be trusted by by people that, that you'll be able to make good on an idea that is good. Cause I, I have a lot of ideas that are garbage. <laughs> so to be able to know that that one might work is, is like a very, a very cool thing. And, uh, and then we did a few workshops, uh, this year we did. And then we did, so we did six since August and with, with a lot of the members that uh, the people that ended up in the cast. And that's amazing to get to hear it in their voices the same people all the way through uh, not completely like Karen Robertson and Richard Zipieri were there from from day one in Khadija. because I like to write to an actor that w- and they got to have so much agency over their roles as well like we would and then when we finally got into rehearsal we spent a full week um of the 3 we had to rehearse which I've never done before a full week sitting down just editing the script like it was like a writers room like we went through line by line how does this feel what is it what is it like to say is there a better version of this do we have an experience that could inform this moment? So it got much, much tighter and much, much funnier. And D-
0: does it, was it hard ever to have that many voices?
2: It so is, I'm, but I'm, I'm pretty used to it. Like that's uh, in, in India, we would do the same thing and just not have a whole week and that, that losing a whole week where you're not doing any blocking. That's also really scary um, because it was the longest show I think I've had ever in my life. Like two hours is the longest play. Normally I, I try to get them in under 90 but it just, it felt like it was just a bit too big to smush into one act the way that we wanted to tackle it. Um, but I'm used to having that many voices. I like voices. I like notes and I'm just trying to get better at taking the ones that I, that I need. Um, and the only time it gets, it gets a bit overwhelming is when, once you're in rehearsal, rehearsal and people are still saying, okay, can we change this? And like, I always want the best joke. I always want the best line. So I'll take changes and make changes right up to opening. I would make it during the run if I could.
0: I've heard that actually. I was um, in a course, and Anna Chatterton was there when, uh-huh. when you were doing mustard yeah. the first time, and she was saying that. I guess she was doing within the glass at mm-hmm. the time, and she was saying she had heard that you had changed mustard
2: right up to the end, or oh, very yeah. close, and that how scary that it's seemed terrifying. To her. Oh, it's it's and it's terrifying for the actors. But the thing that I that you get in professional theater that we don't have as much of an opportunity for in like indie indie like like all the stuff I did at storefront is previews. Like to have a week of previews where you're given rehearsal in the day and then you get to try stuff out at night. It's, it's incredible. And I hated it at Mustard. I was like, I don't, we don't need this. We don't need this. And then bang, bang. I was like, we need this. I want it. Yes, let's go. Um, did you make a lot of changes from preview to? Yeah. And with, um, I think also that previews or the dress rehearsal is usually also when the AD comes in of those companies and you get like, we got a lot of notes on Mustard that so there were a lot more changes like i think we cut 10 minutes off the top of the play and uh, like we cut a bunch of pages off the top for mustard and that's frustrating and scary for the actors but ultimately like everyone wants it to be better um and you can and there's nothing worse than than a line or a joke or being left, you know, holding your dick when it, when something doesn't when something doesn't fly, and the hope is is to catch as many of those as you can. And there's still jokes, obviously, in every play that we leave in just because we're stubborn about it. I'm like, I know that that's not a funny joke, but it's funny for me, and I'm attached to it. And it's a little baby, and I've killed all the other babies, and I'm just going to keep that one. So there's lots of jokes. I think that that live on stage that are just playwrights being like, "Fuck you, that that one's mine. I'm not taking it out." But you can catch a lot of the really really ones that are just not going to fly in preview.
0: For anyone who hasn't yet had the opportunity to see or hear Bang Bang, can you just tell me a little bit about what it is about?
2: Totally. So it is about the responsibility that we have as artists in storytelling and the impact of being inspired by true events. And then plot wise, it's that a uh, a young white male writer reads in the newspaper about a police shooting that involved a a young black female cop and she shot an unarmed black youth and he is inspired by this event to write a play that takes off and is then optioned by a major American studio. Uh, and the star of that film then wants to come and meet the person that he thinks the play and the movie uh, are based on. So it's a, just a big old mess.
0: And in the play, you talk a lot about um, a jumping off point. Yeah. So I'm just wondering what your jumping off point was for this play. Um,
2: it kind of, it was a lot of things like the, the debate. Uh, in the last, over the last few years of, around excessive force and racism and shooting deaths caused by police, um, all the way back in, in 2013, the, the death of a, of a young, uh, man here in Toronto that I kind of just kept thinking about and then was a little bit more attuned as the conversation grew over the next, over the, the next few years. And then just kind of thinking about when we read stories about those things in the newspaper, like those, those are a form of writing, not fiction, it's, but it's, you know, those, that kind of writing affects people. So if you, if you know someone involved in something like that, and you read an article, how are they represented and, and how different kinds of writing impacts real people. Absolutely. And also I'm fascinated by Hollywood and, and all the things that kind of the whitewashing of Hollywood and, and the way that stories are taken and twisted and changed to make something more entertaining.
0: I think what's so amazing about it is there are so many ideas in it. It's a, yeah. it's a play that you can leave and have a lot of conversations mm-hmm. about and think about. Yeah, um, and that's
2: the hope with any with any play, I think, that that people will leave and, and talk more about it because you spend so much time listening when you're sitting and watching it.
0: The character of Tim, who is yeah. the playwright, um, who... I guess as a playwright, you, you maybe would be able to connect with on <laughs> yeah, some level. absolutely. I kind of, obviously he's the, um, not the
2: anti-hero. Uh, yeah, I mean, anti-hero is, is not the worst phrase for it, I think. I mean, he's, kind <laughs> he's a bit of an object guy. lesson as well. Like he does everything wrong. But part of what we were playing with with Bang Bang is what happens when you take the arguments that are like the arguments that truly, you know, white, male cops do often make and put them in the mouth of a, of a young black female cop. And if you put a lot of the arguments that uh, traditionally like a, like a black rights activist would say and put them in the mouth of this shitty white asshole, how do we, how does our perception of, of those arguments change if they're, if it's not who we expect to be saying them?
0: Yeah. I mean, Um, I felt like I really liked Tim. Also the um, actor, Jeff Lillico, he's so funny. I mean, everybody was so funny, but I found myself like, um, uh, feeling bad for him, which yeah. is like crazy because he's, he's such a pawn. <laughs> well, he's so clueless. Yeah. Um.
2: Uh, what was it like to write his character a- as a playwright yourself? I mean, a lot of it, a lot of the things he, he does are things that I've done, you know, and it was a little bit of self punishing, I think too, to, to, to like examine my creative process and, and things that I did well, trying to mean well. And that's the thing, Tim, Tim means well the whole time. His, his intentions are good. He just goes about it completely completely the wrong way and we all know someone like Tim. I've said things that Tim has said in in public before and then thought gone away and been like, "Oh god. I can't imagine how that sounded." And it's so it I think what's nice for people with Tim is that he can say all the horrible things and then we can see them and judge them and, and wonder if if we've said them. And then what about writing um Karen's character? Mm-hmm. I mean, with a lot of the a lot of the characters we had a ton again a ton of input from from the actors. I mean, obviously I'm not a, you know, late forties black woman. And so her experience is very different. And what was so wonderful is that in the room we had this vast array of ages and backgrounds and, um, just experience. So, so much of what we, what we talked about was how to how to listen to each other and how to input those, those things into the script and into the play so that hopefully you, there were five very different perspectives that you could side with and fall out of love with and and move through. And I, the the greatest compliment that anyone gave me after that play was that I couldn't I couldn't pick a side. Yes, yeah. yeah, some people couldn't. Some people really could. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's what you want, yeah. right? Yeah. Um. And I just wonder, as a white playwright mm-hmm. delving into that subject, did you have any pushback or any how like how was that? I, I think the 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 thing
2: that. At least in my mind, made it better that I was writing. It was was surrounding myself with people I could ask questions of, um, and and really trying to do as much research as I could. And but I, I ultimately I, I think anyone can write about anything. I I do believe that. I just think that there are right ways and not right ways. I think there are better better ways to try, to try to tackle subjects like this.
0: So, what was it like to work with Donna Michelle
2: as a dramaturg? Uh, totally incredible. Um, she is so honest and blunt and i uh, think that we clicked also on a on a comedy level like she she one of the, my favorite jokes in the whole play uh like i wrote the setup but she wrote the punchline and it's the it's the aristocats uh punchline it's just it's just one of the most perfect jokes uh and it's she's amazing i can't i can't say enough nice things about about donna was she involved from the very beginning she was involved pretty pretty early on like Quite heavily in the the reworks of the draft since August, um, and then we'd had a few discussions before. But we actually met before the the project began. We had a couple of beers, and because Matt, who at Factory, just kind of thought we should meet and talk. And uh, I, <laughs> she'd say that she liked me right away, but I feel like she didn't. <laughs> but I think that we uh, we we got there, and now I would I'd love to work with her again. And what was your process like? Would you send her a draft? Yeah, she'd, I'd send her drafts, and we'd meet, and she'd give me a bunch of notes. But again, th- those notes, like. Both of us, I think, work better once we've heard it. It's very important for me to hear things read out loud, especially the older I get, the more I tend to want to overlap dialogue. And that's really impossible to read on your own in a coffee shop surrounded by human beings that think you're a total crazy person. And I think us both working on a script that we just heard read by actors was very, was very helpful
0: you record your workshops? I I, that, I don't know if you're allowed to do
2: that. don't think you technically can. I also don't think I'd want to listen to two hours of it. Like it's, it's what hits you kind of in the moment. It's very, it's really instinctual. I feel like that's what the like note-taking process is. Like mm-hmm. whatever you think is the most important thing to write, whatever your brain thinks is the most important thing to write down at the time. That's what, it's, it's what that's what you write down. down. Yeah.
0: Your plays are so funny. <laughs> um, I'm wondering how important that is to you to have humor in your work.
2: Very, And also I like a lot, of, I, I think so. Like I, I really believe that, that comedy comes from tragedy and vice versa. And and that's why it made so much sense to, for me to explore this subject matter with, through, through comedy. And we didn't think it was, it would be as funny as people then later said it was like, we thought it was probably a drama with some funny bits and, and then people really were, were buffying. Um And that's why like, I, I don't know that, when I say that anyone has anyone can write about anything, I, I do think that's true. But I also don't think, I don't know if what we did was totally right or I, like, I I don't think we came up with any answers. I think we just kind of got to explore an idea over the course of two hours.
0: I think what I feel I liked about it so much is, be, is that it does explore... A very you know current subject mm-hmm. of what what can we as artists write about yeah. use in our work, but it it could have very easily fallen into a lesson, like it could have yeah. very easily not as been as entertaining,
2: you know. And that's always a struggle. I think people totally, and I and I think part of like a good a good sad joke <laughs> in punch up another play, I call them sads um, rather than jokes, but a, a good sad is one that makes you laugh and then wonder why you laughed and kind of look in words and be like, is it okay that I laughed? Why did I laugh there? Um, and, and that's kind of my favorite kind of, kind of humor. When you're writing, do you ever want to write to explore
0: an idea or get a point across? Is it always entertainment? Like wh- wh- what's first for
2: you? An audience, an audience having an entertaining experience is always first. Um, Because that's what I want when I, if I drag myself out of my house, out of my Netflix, out of my pajamas, out of the takeout that's probably in my fridge, I I want, I really want to be entertained. And whether that's laughing or crying or, or some kind of catharsis, I think that that's, and that's maybe why it's so important for me to hear it read immediately, because that in that way, the actors are the first audience for the ideas. And then anyone that you invite to the reading are the first audience for that act for those actors. And that's really how we, I think, function in in theater. And part two of of the the way this play is set up and what I'll probably have to write into the text um, for when it's published is that it it's it feels a lot more sitcomy than I meant it to, and it almost started to feel like a laugh track, which I I thought was really cool. Like our set was was really beautiful. It was designed by Nick Blay, and it it was meant to evoke a sitcom set, so like lower walls and visible lights, and then just the way that we consume stories and you look at the way you laugh at it at a sitcom and can we you know laugh at at jokes in this setting in a play about something like this Uh,
0: I wonder (laughs) as someone who's so successful with comedy do you ever have to
2: question your joke like oh it's so funny but it doesn't yes oh man of course like I still like the very first play that play Love Sex Money we had a holocaust joke in there and I was like I will never write anything more offensive than this and and now it's like, oh, is it too offensive, or is it just offensive enough? Because um, sometimes we we need to be to be shaken, and that's also that thin line of comedy, right? Sometimes you you do push too far, but sometimes if you push just far enough, you make people think in a different way. I wonder, having had so much success,
0: do you feel nervous when you have a play coming out that you need to up yourself? Of from- course,
2: and you always want you always want to be better than yourself. You always want to top the last thing. Um, And it's interesting now that like some plays that I'm working on are plays that were started years ago. So that it, so reading your old jokes and your old self, you're like, Oh God, like, did I write this when I was 12? Like, why did I think this door slamming bit with the banana was really going to work? And then trying to up, up those. But I I think every putting, writing a play and directing a play or putting a play on at all is, is nerve wracking because it's your soul. Like it's, it's your brain and, and it's the way that you think and the way that you speak. Because like, there's always a character in in a play that sounds like me. Sounds like that the speak. They all speak quickly. I speak very quickly. Um, so I think like it's, but it's also so amazing to get to do that, to get to like have your journal read by 200 people at <laughs> night, and you just really hope you put a lot of good jokes in it that day.
0: So I wonder because you have done so many plays that have been so successful that have that Kat Sandler feel to them. Do you ever think of doing something completely different, a drama, a musical, just something that's yeah. a
2: real departure? I mean, I I thought Bang Bang was going to be a really big departure. Um, and I think it, it did by the end of it, like a two act was a big departure for me. And then something that got quite dramatic near the end was really, was really fun. Um, and I love musicals. And I, uh, my first, my first produce, producerial gig was a, was that terrible musical that I wrote in high school and started. Um so I think I, I, would, I would love to do book and lyrics for a musical, but I'm, I'm really interested in, in form and, and how we kind of play with theatrical expectations. If we have people change characters without changing their costumes or changing the way that they, they speak, or if we have, if we just ask an audience to, I'm, I'm super interested in making an audience work. Like I'm, I will give you all the jokes and I'll give you as much entertainment as I can get in there, but I want you to be awake and having to think throughout the whole thing.
0: And what's next for you? Um, you talked a little bit about some of the other projects. Yeah. What, what can we see
2: from Kat I'm, in the future? Uh, I'm developing two plays uh, for the Tarragon as part of my A Canada Council residency there. And then I've got these two huge plays to do at the Citadel, which are um, two individual plays but interconnected. And they happen in two different spaces in the Citadel. And they happen at the same time. And actors run back and forth between them. So... They the same world, the same overarching story, but uh, two different mini stories. So, as an audience member, you could see one play or both plays, and then get both sides of the story. Daryl Clorin is a is a genius mastermind,
0: and that's in <laughs> that upcoming next season
2: year. That's twenty nineteen, um, and then various little TV gigs and and projects until then. And uh, probably I won't be able to stop myself from doing something little in indie, just because.
0: Well, it has been a pleasure (laughs) speaking with you. And um, it's been such a pleasure listening and and hearing Bang Bang perform. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for doing this.
1: That was Laura Mullen's interview with Kat Sandler.
0: Visit playmepodcast.com to learn more about our shows, leave a comment, or let us know what you think of our podcast.
1: Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley. The associate producer is Pippa Johnstone. This episode was edited by Chris Tolley. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Special thanks to our partners, the Playwrights Guild of Canada, Factory Theatre, Tarragon Theatre, and the Musical Stage Company. Play Me is an Expect Theatre production. For more information, please visit playmepodcast.com.